0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Fast Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, I am Aaron McFarling, sports columnist for the Roanoke Times. We are back in our cozy studios.
1: Studio um, being a room... <laughs> It just has a desk in it. It's okay. not like we have like acoustics on the walls, like egg cartons or anything to make it sound better. It's just it's just a room. I think it will
0: sound slightly better though than our over the phone discussions. Although I think those turned out fairly well, given uh, the circumstances. No, no New York trip for me. I'm I'm just heartbroken that I will not be heading back to the Big Apple. This would have been the real. Youth.
1: This would have been the real New York, though, right? You say Madison Square Garden? Manhattan, yes.
0: This would have been a a better, but I'm a little road-weary, to be honest with you. I'm ready to move on to baseball. I'm ready to move on to the hockey playoffs, the rail Rail yard dogs. But we're also, I mean, we're not going to talk about that here, of course. But we're going to talk about a little bit of basketball. We'll wrap up the Virginia Tech basketball season. We'll talk about whether the ACC is a massively overrated leg. Uh, We will get into spring football then. The meat of this podcast will be spring football discussion, quarterbacks, Replacing Ford and Hodges, right side of the O-line, the D-line, the Chuck Clark uh, absence in the secondary now. And uh, we'll get into a little, uh, I guess, big picture talk about the benefits of spring practice in general. Let's start with the basketball because, you know, I think that's a good transition point. Uh, you know, Virginia Tech lost to your Badgers. Congratulations to your Badgers for winning not only that game, but also beating with, uh, the number one overall seed, Villanova, to advance to the Sweet 16. Andy, your thoughts when you watched that uh, that
1: Tech game on uh, Thursday night? Well, first of all, I I told you they weren't an 8 seed. I said this last week, how ridiculous the Big Ten seeding was. Uh, so from that sense, I think Virginia Tech kind of got a bad uh, draw uh, in that matchup. I also said I thought South Carolina was ridiculously overrated at 7, and that was obviously very wrong uh but you know that game i watched it obviously i was rooting for the badgers because i'm an alum of that school uh didn't do it on twitter because i didn't want all these virginia tech fans to come after me and be like what are you rooting for the the opponent for in this game but uh it kind of played out how i thought it would i mean you look at the size advantage that the badgers had it took them a while to get there hap was in foul trouble in the first half but they really took advantage of that in the second half and, and nigel hayes uh, you know, first two games has played extremely well. Really one of the reasons they won these first two games. And, you know, Virginia Tech just didn't have a post player to match those guys. I mean, you you knew coming into the game that that was going to be a weakness for the Hokies. Uh, You just wondered if they could shoot well enough to overcome that. And uh, they shot well in some stretches. Was it uh, Bibbs that had two four-point plays? Yes. Uh, That was kind of strange <laughs> to have two four-point plays like that. Uh, You know, Seth Allen getting hurt early obviously didn't help them, although he played really well in the second half, I thought. But, uh, you know, Bronson Koenig played one of the best games of his life. Uh, You know, I think he made eight three-pointers, nine three-pointers, something like that. Yeah, school record. Uh, A lot of them were open. You know, I think he made a couple that were just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he made that over the defender. But I think a lot of them were just open looks. And you give a guy like that open looks, he's going to hit them. Uh, And then you look at the the stuff in the paint. It was just too much for the Hokies to overcome. But, uh, you know, yeah, you know, big picture kind of stepping back. I think Virginia tech making the tournament in year three under buzz, uh, you know, winning 20 games uh, were they 10 and eight in the, in the ACC this Correct. year uh, that those are all big accomplishments, especially when you look at where this program was a couple years ago. So they, I mean, they're going to get some recruits in, they're going to get some guys healthy. You wonder what a Chris Clark could have done in that game. And you know, he's not a post player per se, but a little bit bigger and as they recruit some size here to, to actually defend the post like that I think this is a program that's definitely moving in the right direction so uh, nothing to hang the heads about for the Hokies fans there uh, I think Wisconsin was a an under team and it's obviously a tournament tested team uh, which it showed the next game against Villanova and uh, it's going to be a tough out from here on out
0: yeah I was there in Buffalo it took me a little while to get there uh, there was some travel woes, but once I got there, I, I thought the Seth Allen injury was a bigger deal than you you seem to think it was. Um, well, oh, I think it was a big deal. Yeah, I mean they played six minutes in the first half with neither Allen nor Laday on the floor. Now Laday was a coach's choice to leave him out on the on the bench, and I think that was just so he wouldn't pick up fouls against uh, your big guy inside there. But what 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 the net net of that was, you know, they were leading by two or three points when both those guys were, were sent to the bench and, and, um, you know, when they came out the other side, they were down five or six. And I thought that was a pretty good, they showed pretty good resolve with, uh, you know, their two leading scorers not out there to be that close. And they cut it to 1.5 times in the second half, but when 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 Allen came back out of the out of the locker room and he's you know he's got his shoe off and then he had a case of turf toe is what we found out later it was a bad case of turf toe according to Buzz Williams and uh, I just said well that's that's it for the Hokies I mean because he's their closer I've written about it during the regular season that he was kind of their March Lotto ticket because you need a guy who can make those incredible plays at the end of games who's fearless and all those things. And Seth was that guy. He was out there. He was playing, but he wasn't 100%. And I don't know that, you know, I'm not saying that they would have won if he'd have been 100%. That's not what I'm saying. i picked Virginia, uh Virginia Tech to lose in that game. But I just, you know, you kind of, it's sort of like what you said with Chris Clark. You kind of wonder, you kind of wish if you're a Hokie fan that you could have seen that game play out with your, your sort of, you know, your Mariana Rivera at full strength.
1: Oh, yeah, I I definitely think so. I think, you know, both sides in that first half were a little shorthanded. the Badgers, because Hap got those two fouls early on, uh, went to the bench for, I think, the last 10 minutes Mm -hmm. of the first half. Uh, So that was interesting that both sides really had to get by without one of their top players there for different reasons, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I think you can look back and say a lot of what ifs with this team. What if Clark had been healthy? You know, what if there hadn't been some injuries earlier in the year? Uh, you know, but it's still a pretty good run. Mm-hmm. And you say, you know, they didn't really have that, that Mariano Rivera, uh, the guy kind of closes games like that. No, nobody in this tournament has made any of those like sort of game winning shots or heroic shots at the end. I think I read something for the, like, uh, players are, like Oh for eight or something like that on last second shots in this tournament. If it really hasn't had that, you know, one shining moment, moment that you expected all this stuff, it might be hard to make the montage this year. Well, when somebody uh, fouls you, when you don't need to foul. Uh, Oh, Vanderbilt situation. That that took that out of the uh, the equation with that one. But it was kind of a boring first day. The first two days of the tournament, everybody's like, "Oh, this is you know March blandness here." And then uh, really cranked up the next two, the next couple days with the upsets that happened. Do you follow that uh,
0: Titanic hoops on Twitter? I don't. Okay, what they do is they take last second shots uh, from. The regular season, and then they said it to that. My heart will go on so oh. by Celine, I guess Celine. Yeah, being, the Titanic song, and they're all wonderful. Like he's like this. Is, this was a great shot, but it's even better with the Titanic. Music. <laughs> and the, the Titanic hoops guy was like watching all this action on on Thursday and Friday, and he's like twiddling my thumbs, like because there was nothing. You're right. There was no. There was none of the heroics that we're used to seeing uh still some good games uh still some you know high intensity action but uh, hopefully these these last uh these last games you know once we're in the sweet 16 round we'll see more of that uh sort of cinderella stuff well
1: that's always the thing it's like if there are a ton of upsets early in the tournament it seems like later in the tournament it's worse because mm-hmm. you get these you know sweet 16 matchups so it's like okay well now the one plays the uh 14 seed I'm blanking on what the seed might be that they play Uh, you have this just ridiculous mismatch in that one so maybe now that uh, I think 11 seed is the lowest Xavier uh, Badgers are the second lowest at number eight maybe now that there's some really good teams they're still around mostly in the bracket that this will be a really entertaining tournament going forward
0: well you know who's not around is ACC teams there's only one left it's North Carolina I wrote a blog post on Monday ranking the exits one through eight in terms of uh, ignom- ignominy. Um,
1: in terms I of, like that word, and I I never use it because I don't know how to say it. It's hard. to I say. I always stumble over saying it, and then I sound like a doofus for trying to even use it. Like I just did. Uh, no, it,
0: it's you know the embarrassment level, uh, and I you know I'm looking at my rankings, and I'm starting to wonder if I I, I put Duke at five with one being the worst and.
1: You said you probably would have put Duke at number one. Well, if you describe it as, like, not meeting expectations, I think I would put Duke at number one. But if you talk about embarrassment, I might even put Virginia number one just because that second round – I mean, to score 39 points in an NCAA tournament game is pretty bad. Uh, just you know, odd little relation to that uh, Tony Bennett coach team is when I was a sophomore in college at Wisconsin – The Badgers were a five seed in the NCAA tournament against Southwest Missouri State, coached by Steve Alford at the time, and they scored 32 points, (laughs) which is, I think, the lowest for a a five seed in the history of the tournament. Uh, Dick Bennett was the coach of that team, and Tony Bennett, all the way at the end, was a team manager who they kind of snuck in as an assistant coach uh, doing that stuff. The next year they went to the Final Four. So it shows you kind of how hit and miss this horrible offense can be. But, I mean, the fact that you score 39 points in the NCAA tournament game, I I think that might take the cake for ACC performances.
0: It was bad, and they were never competitive. I I threw a few mitigating factors in. I mean, the fact that Wilkins didn't play. I mean, he's sort of your defensive stalwart, and he's kind of your energy guy. Does that Um, help the offense, though? No, not necessarily, but he can get some, you know, Cheap points, you know, rebounds, putbacks, those kinds of things. And and I, I'm not making excuses for Virginia. I mean, they, they were bad, and it was it was ugly. And I was sitting there really hoping not to go to New York, and I was like, well, Florida, if you want to pour it on, I'm, I'm okay with that, uh, selfishly. But uh, I thought Florida State was the worst. I mean, just, you know, you're seven a seven-and-a-half-point favorite. Uh, you 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 know you're supposed to blast this this team this Xavier team that didn't have a very good regular season and not only do you lose you lose 91-66 it's never close you're one of the you know you you finished tied for second in the ACC regular season you know in this big group of teams that was supposed to be one of the teams that could possibly make a run to the Final Four I know you look at their history and you say well Florida State never does anything but you know I happen to think that. They they had a shot to do something this year. I had them going to I think to the Elite Eight, so two rounds uh, farther than where they went. But just the way they went out, um, you know, I thought that was bad. I thought Wake Wake losing in the first four set a bad tone for the whole for the whole thing. Uh, Miami's lost Michigan State, even though I picked Michigan State to go to the Sweet Sixteen, which didn't happen. Uh, and I thought so. I thought they would. I thought Miami would lose, but that was just you know, a non-competitive effort from a team that's again, I told you on the last podcast, they're the worst team in the country against the spread this year and they proved it again. I mean, they do.
1: I should pay attention to these yeah. gambling lines more clearly.
0: Well, I mean, it was just it's one of those things that uh I think it matters this time of year because you can win games but not be impressive doing it and then it catches up with you eventually. And I think that's what happened to Miami here. So, but, I mean, I thought I've ranked Virginia Tech seventh on that out of eight in terms of, uh, you know, least embarrassing because uh, of all those things we just talked about, uh, the least embarrassing I thought was Notre Dame because they got past their, their first-round opponent and then they played a team they were supposed to lose to and did lose um, in, in a competitive game. So I don't think they, they really um, had anything to hang their hats on. Neither did the Hokies. But once you get up to five and, and above, I think all those teams are really kind of uh, shameful performances for the league.
1: Yeah, I, I, about Florida State number one, I, I wouldn't have put that number one because I don't really think I ever expect Florida State to do anything yeah. in the tournament. I'm looking at Leonard Hamilton's history here as a coach and, uh, you know, 15 years probably at Florida State, a bunch of years at Miami. Before that, he's got one trip to the Sweet 16 in that entire time. Yeah. Uh, They just seem to do less with more at Florida State. Even when they have a really good team and a well-rounded team, it's like I just don't trust them in the tournament and you know Xavier is actually a really really good tournament team uh, but that's a team that is consistently under consistently beat wins that first round matchup and has gotten to the sweet 16 and beyond quite a bit so uh you know but 91 that, 62 that was a blowout uh, I didn't watch that game so I don't know if it was yeah, that it, lopsided it was, it was bad the bad. entire time yeah uh yeah that's pretty bad uh you know Miami I think I, I think when you talk about teams that don't show up Miami certainly uh, earns consideration there because I mean that was a blowout against a, a nine seed
0: well and if you're going with coach's history I mean Jim Laranega has a pretty good history in this tournament you know going back to his George Mason days so that was a you know that was that was one of your opportunities to show your depth right you know, the the thing about te- the thing about the ACC this year was it's was supposed to be this ultra deep league. Not necessarily, you know, the top teams were maybe not as good as some of the top teams of of vintage ACC seasons, but this was a deep league that uh, was going to send a lot of teams deep into the tournament, or at least a couple of rounds. And for Miami to bow out in that fashion, I thought was pretty embarrassing. But I mean, you know, that that's why you do rankings is because people can argue over them, and it's kind of fun.
1: Do you think the ACC is all of a sudden, this whole season, they've been overrated because of this?
0: I think a little bit, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a fair conclusion to draw.
1: The, what if UNC goes on and wins the title? I think that, that helps mitigate it. I think that makes it better.
0: I think that makes this first weekend more of a footnote than than otherwise. But uh, And,
1: you know, that, that is that who you picked? That's who I picked. I picked UNC to beat Duke. I was all in on the ACC, and obviously that has not worked out very well in this bracket.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, it doesn't didn't really matter what your seeding was. You know, you were you were an eleven seed at Lake Wake Forest, playing another eleven, you lost. You were a two seed in Duke, and you lost. You were a three seed in Florida State, and you lost. You know, an eight seed in Virginia Tech, you lost. Everybody lost. I mean, it. it I think that does show you that uh, all this praise that's been heaped upon the league this season
1: was overblown. Yes. See, I don't know. I I don't feel like one week in March just all of a sudden eliminates how tough the conference was before that. And I uh, have Patrick Stevens uh, D1 course on Twitter tweeted the ACC's record against out-of-conference opponents last year and this year, and it's the same, basically. They just had more tournament success this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a more focus on the tournament and how well teams do then, but... Uh, you know, sometimes teams just get hot at the right time of year, and sometimes other teams don't. I, I don't know if it's necessarily... It's like it's like a bowl game sometimes. It's like, well, is that really indicative of how good all these teams were during the regular season? I think
0: Patrick Stevens is making my point for me, though, because last year, if their record was similar to what it is this year, I mean, there there wasn't the kind of discussions about the ACC last year like they were this year about how it got cranked
1: up this year. It was still pretty well respected last year. I thought this year, this year it reached sort of uh, hyperbolic proportions where it's like, this could be the best conference ever along with the big East like that. So from that sense, yes, I agree with you. Right. That's what makes it overrated. I'm
0: I'm not saying it's a bad league. I'm saying it was overhyped. It was an overhyped league. Um, And, you know, if you look at the record from last year and it was very similar to this year out of conference, you know, the league is probably about the same as it was last year. And so for it to have uh, generated all this uh, hoopla, and I'm, I got caught up in it too. You know, I mean, when when Tech beat Duke early in the season, you know, what what a win that was, you know, in preseason number one and all that. Well, you know, they didn't have Grayson and Allen, and, and now they're they're not even a Sweet 16 team. So maybe the, the win wasn't
1: as great. You know, I, who knows? I think the lesson in this is to never – anoint a conference as the greatest ever and something like every time we say oh sec football will never be topped and all of a sudden it's like well it's actually kind of middle of the pack now compared to some of these other leagues acc basketball this is the greatest thing ever the year the big east was the the greatest conference ever i can't remember i don't think they did that well in the tournament that year so uh i think sometimes we set up <laughs> things to fail when we declare it to be the best ever and then it's like well if you don't win the tournament and have three or four teams in the final four, all of a sudden that looks like a disappointment. Obviously this is a disappointment not to have uh, more than one team get to the second week of the NCAA tournament. But uh, I think sometimes it just becomes too much for a league even to uh, achieve a level that people set for it.
0: Yeah. I think if I could go back, I'd probably move Duke way up maybe to number two because you're right. Uh, you know, the, the, the riffraff, when you get a lot of teams in the, into the tournament, like they, like Tech did, your, your, some of your riffraff, your lower level teams are going to lose. It's going to happen. But for the for the upper echelon teams to to perform as poorly as they have is, I think the, the biggest thing. All right, let's let's move on to football. Um, it's a good time to transition into spring football. Uh, j- you just attended a spring football preseason or pre spring football press conference yesterday. Let's call it a spring fling
1: presser. <laughs> a festival. Let's it I
0: like it by the way, your anointing thing was very similar to algro you 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 stole that from al let's not get out the anointing let's, oil. Let's anymore.
1: put away the anointing oils. Let's not take out the anointing oils quite yet
0: <laughs> but yeah, um, so what did you glean out of that uh that press conference? Did anything surprise you
1: um Anything said there that was uh, very interesting? Uh, not overly surprising. I, I thought, uh, whereas last year was like, oh, what are they going to do with the quarterbacks and stuff? I think this year there's sort of an understanding about how they're going to go about this competition. Uh, certainly an understanding from media that Justin Fuente is not going to tell us anything. Yeah. Even even closed his opening remarks with, you know, that being said, I'll be happy not to tell you who our starting quarterback. I mean, they're, they're going to go through the, the same process that they did last year. Uh, which, you know, as a media member, it'd be nice to have a little more insight into it. But this year, I think it's at least, uh, you know, we've been through a competition. We've seen how it played out before. That it's not going to be a surprise, like, oh, we're not going to talk to these guys until, you know, at the end of the spring, maybe. It's like, well, that's just sort of <laughs> how it's going to go. Uh, so I, I think there are less surprises on that front. And I think if you're a player – Uh, You know, you've been through this spring before with him. You know kind of what they're about and what they want to do, and there's less of that. Obviously, it's a younger group because they lost a bunch of seniors, some underclassmen that went pro. Uh, That's a big group of production that left and a bunch of senior leaders and all that stuff. But uh, you have guys that have been through it before and can bring along those younger guys because they know the expectations of the coaching staff.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, nobody cares that we can't talk to the quarterbacks. That's that's not a – I'm curious – From a beat writer's perspective, um, when you know that going in, like you said, you didn't really know last year whether you'd get a chance to talk to the quarterbacks or how often or, you know, there's sort of a a standard way that we've gone about things as writers over the years. You know, well, we're going to get a chance to talk to the quarterbacks. We'll talk to them about how they feel and all that stuff. Now you know that's not possible. How does that change how you approach that a particular question mark because i think it's one of the biggest question marks of the spring which we'll get to in a bit
1: well it, it makes you try a lot harder to get whatever morsel of information you can from the coach about it because that's you know you're not going to see practice you're not going to talk to the quarterbacks you're just talking to the coach and have to you know he's going to try as much as he can not to say anything about it so maybe you have to approach questions in a different way that might produce an answer that you know maybe doesn't come out right out and say it but the way he says it or the way he phrases things can probably you know you can read between the lines with certain things like that so Uh, it's kind of annoying in that sense, but, uh, I guess it's a challenge. It's kind of a puzzle at this point of year to try to get information about how the team's doing and, you know, kind of what a depth chart looks like.
0: Yeah. You're looking for, for clues. It's kind of a cat and mouse kind of game.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think last year, uh, you know, by the spring game, Gerard Evans obviously got the most work and was the most productive guy. And I know there was, you know, oh, they were neck and neck throughout the summer and into the August practice. Then Josh Jackson popped on the scene for a week, but then Evans won the job and it was amazing during the season. So sometimes maybe it's confused uh, on purpose, so you don't know what's going on, and maybe an element of surprise that Virginia Tech can have. I think sometimes the answer is sort of sitting right there in front of you, and the most obvious, uh, <laughs> obvious guy that's going to play quarterback is the guy who's going to be.
0: Yeah. Before we get to the spring questions, I, I didn't even write this one down, but
1: you did go to Pro Day, right?
0: And that happened I in did. between. Uh, yes. Anything
1: stand out at Pro Day? Not really. I mean, those are is really boring. Like, for the longest time, we weren't allowed to go and watch that. Uh, and now we're allowed in there, and you get in there, and you're like, wow, they're they're really just doing drills. <laughs> it's not exciting. Uh, it's not even like the combine where you see, like, the numbers go up and stuff like that. You don't even find out what they ran really until afterwards, if at all. Uh, You know, it was nice talking to those guys and seeing those guys again, because I think sometimes uh, during the season, they kind of put up a wall when they're talking about stuff and then they get out of season and uh, you haven't talked to Isaiah Ford in three months. Uh, He's almost kind of nice to talk to me. He almost kind of enjoys talking to us again because it's been a while since he's talked to us. So uh, interesting. It wasn't like that for everybody. Gerard Evans chose not to talk to the media. Uh, and maybe one part of this uh, approach that Justin Fuente takes with keeping quarterbacks off limits is all of a sudden they feel like they don't need to do that. I'm not saying he needs to, it's his choice whether he wants to, but he's trying to go into a league where media access is mandatory. Uh, He's trying to, you know, kind of put himself out there and make himself an attractive uh, draftable option. It wouldn't hurt to talk to the media, I think in this situation, but he chose not to. That's sort of been his, a uh, whole relationship with the media ever since he went pro. So uh, not surprised that it didn't change with this, but I, you know, it would have been nice to talk to Gerard about his whole decision and how he thought he did during pro day.
0: What do you think is going to happen with Gerard now? I mean, there's not much more he can do between now and the draft, right? This is,
1: well, there are individual workouts. If a team wants to bring him in or, or meetings or things like that, uh, you know the stuff that he's done publicly is over with in terms of the combine and the pro day, but they you know they can do private workouts and things like that. And obviously he's going to continue to work out uh, and train uh, before the draft. It'll be interesting to see where he goes because I don't, I have no idea where he'll go. In does this he draft. get drafted? I think he does. I mean you you look at the quarterback lists and he's probably anywhere from sixth to tenth or twelfth mm-hmm. on those quarterback. It kind of depends. I think there's sort of a consensus top five guys, even though they're not necessarily first rounders this year or anything like that uh a couple might go there i i don't know if any are going to go in the, the top five picks of the draft or anything like that but uh this is a quarterback starved league i mean look at look at some of the guys that are getting contracts here mike glennon for 15 million dollars a year uh you know last year brock osweiler got a, a big payday i mean they, these teams are looking for the next big thing at quarterback and i think The fact that Dak Prescott went in the fourth round last year and came on and started for for a very good team. He didn't go into some situation like Cleveland where he had to be the hero of the team. He was on a team with a great offensive line, great receivers. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott uh, burst on the scene as a running back. And that was the perfect situation for him to go into. But I think a lot of teams look at that and go, hey, we can draft a quarterback a little bit further down the line if we have a lot of other things in place and he can step in and, and be a productive guy from the start. Uh, even a couple years ago, Russell Wilson like that with the Seahawks, I think was kind of a similar deal, a little bit higher ranked. But if you hit on a guy like that, that's such an advantage uh, because you know the Cowboys are paying Dak Prescott nothing right now, so they can pay everybody else a lot of money. And you saw that with the Seahawks originally, and then eventually you have to you have to pay Russell Wilson his you know twenty million whatever he's getting. Uh, that's a real stress on the salary cap. But if you can find a young quarterback like that who's good. That's such a huge advantage from a salary implication that, uh, you know, I I think that teams will continue to take chances on these quarterbacks late and hope that they can jump in and play. And I I think Gerard could be that kind of guy. Uh, Again, I don't know how well he's going to adapt to the NFL. I I don't think he's, you know, polished enough or refined enough with mechanics and stuff like that to step in and contribute right away. But, uh, you know, he could get in a situation where he could uh, watch and learn for a while and, and eventually be a guy who knows.
0: Did Bucky get in a three-point stance during his He
1: show? did, okay. and he actually he did some blocking. He actually looked a lot more comfortable doing the blocking. I don't know if it was a home field advantage type of thing, being at the, the Beamer Barn doing that stuff, but uh, I'm sure he got back from the combine. He's like, I need to work on that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so obviously he's done some work and some training with that, and it, he looked a lot better doing it.
0: Okay, let's talk about the players who are on the team now, uh, and then we'll start with quarterbacks. Is this Josh Jackson's? job to lose do you think
1: i would say he's the front runner uh it's tough to say a guy is a clear front runner when he's a redshirt freshman who's never thrown a pass in a college game before uh but his his competition it's not like they're experienced either I mean, you've got a.j bush uh, played two years in nebraska and i say played he was on the roster he never got in the game uh went to iowa western community college and then transferred to virginia tech here so uh, actually, I think – yeah, he was two years in Nebraska and last fall at Iowa Western, so this is his fourth year out of high school. So at least you have a guy that's been through some college practices before. Uh, his Iowa Western stats weren't phenomenal or anything like that. It's not like he was a Gerard Evans type. It wasn't – they weren't even good. No, no. I mean they they were really, uh, really mediocre stats. Uh, so it's not like a, he's a, a junior college All-American like Gerard Evans was coming in. Uh, but I don't know what kind of coaching he's ever gotten. Uh, before Uh, certainly Justin Fuente has a reputation and Brad Cornelson uh, offensive coordinator have a reputation for developing quarterbacks I I think he might be stepping into a situation where he's getting uh, probably the best uh, direction and coaching uh, quarterback wise in his career so who knows how that takes off with him Uh, Hendon Hooker is an early enrollee it's going to be those three that are uh, sharing reps the most of the reps early in practice and uh, you know, that's always a wild card with a guy like that. He's a he's a true freshman. He's just out of high school who knows exactly how he's going to adapt to the college game. Uh, it'd be interesting to see him a little bit. I mean, we'll get a glimpse at one of the practices late in spring ball, so I think that'll definitely be a focus to see how a guy like that has adapted uh, over the first 13 practices of spring. But uh, those are the big three guys, and there's not a, a, like a fifth-year guy out there. There's not somebody who's gotten some playing time in college before. It's all brand new to everybody.
0: Don't you think Jackson's background, the fact that he's the son of a coach, could accelerate him, you know, accelerate his progress? And, and, you know, this is not something that will overwhelm him, him, right? I mean, he's kind of been groomed for this.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that's sort of his value. And I think part of the reason that he even came to Virginia Tech is he got overlooked in the recruiting process. He transferred as a either a sophomore or a junior, he transferred and didn't play for the rest of the season. So there was a a big gap there. And that's sort of when uh, guys first start to make uh, waves on the recruiting scene at these camps and uh, colleges start to take notice. So I guess, I don't want to say he was a late bloomer, but it was uh, sort of a delayed uh, production that he had in high school. And uh, obviously the Hokies had an in because Scott Leffler uh, coached at Michigan with Fred Jackson, his dad, who uh, was the longtime Michigan running backs coach. So he had a connection there. He knew him. Uh, Jackson, Josh actually committed uh, to Virginia Tech when Leffler was the offensive coordinator, stayed on after Fuente came in. That was one of the first trips that Fuente made recruiting wise was to go up to talk to Jackson. So uh, he's got that background. Uh, he's a pretty good uh quarterback from the sounds of it that may have been overlooked in the recruiting process. And I think his demeanor is just one that, you know, nothing really bothers him. He just seems like a very laid back guy. Uh, doesn't get too high, too low. And I think if you're looking for a quarterback, I think that's what Justin Fuente wants is uh, somebody who temperamentally is not going to get, uh, you know, lose his mind. If he throws an interception, you know, you shake it off, you move to the next drive and move forward. And sometimes that's tough for a young quarterback to do, but I think it's something that, that Josh does pretty well.
0: Well, let's talk about the guys he'll be throwing to. You would think this would with, – with Isaiah Ford and Bucky Hodges gone, you would think this would be a real opportunity spring for for receivers at Virginia Tech. What's that situation looking like? Um, I mean, obviously we know some of the names, but uh, take us through some who, who might be able to earn
1: themselves some playing time with a good spring. Uh You know, Cam Phillips is obviously the one that's back. So he's the veteran of the group. And at least that gives you an anchor in that room. Uh, A couple of the guys they're looking at this spring, I think, you know, Eric Kuma, Phil Patterson are two of the outside receivers that are are probably going to step up into a a bigger role. Uh, Divine Diablo is somebody they actually moved to defense. He's going to be backing up Terrell Edmonds at free safety. So. Uh, looking for younger guys. I think Kuma and Patterson are guys that, that stood out to them last year. And that's one of the reasons they felt comfortable with moving Diablos. They felt those guys could handle it. I think in the slot, they have a lot of guys in this, this incoming class that they think could help CJ Carroll's hurt this spring. So he's not going to be out there. Uh, he's coming in off off season surgery. Khalil Pimpleton is a, is, first of all, it's a great name. Second of all, he's a, he's a, like five seven, five eight, hundred and fifty pounds, something like that. But he is like a jitterbug. From <laughs> looking at him in practice, like he is tough to cover. Like he is a playmaker with the ball in his hands, even though he's not the biggest guy. Uh, I think they're very excited about him as a playmaker in the slot. And uh, a couple guys coming in, uh, Sean Savoy this summer, Hezekiah Grimsley, I think, are kind of maybe not quite like that, but in a similar mold where they could be playmaker types in the slot. So uh, those are guys I think, uh, in addition to, to maybe an older player like a Jalen Bradshaw uh could possibly step on the up in the spring because there's plenty of opportunity i mean you lose the first and fifth leading receivers of all time at virginia tech uh you're going to have a lot of production to replace so it's on those guys to to step up and advance the game and i'm sure by the end of spring the coaches are going to be saying they're not anywhere near they need where they need to be but they're going to have to get there because i think they're going to play significant snaps in the fall
0: well, I contend that Diablo's going to have a devil of a time with his transition to the defensive side. What, what do you thought? What are your thoughts on that? That was just sitting
1: on the table for you. Yeah. All right,
0: let's stick with the offensive side of the ball. Uh, the right side of the offensive line. Uh, obviously, you lose two stalwarts there. Uh, what are the candidates to replace those guys? And uh, how does Fuente feel about his situation on the line right now?
1: Well, it's always tough on the offensive line because they mix and match so much. Uh, they, they move guys around all the time they did it last spring and all the way up through august actually where you know some days vance Weiss, the offensive line coach would just say everybody move one position to the right just to see how they handle it <laughs> and it's like oh that's kind of interesting and all of a sudden your left guard's playing center if he's never played center before uh so that that's kind of an interesting approach they have with that but uh one of the big injuries they have uh missing spring is parker Osterlow, who i think people thought would be sort of that right tackle that steps in so right now it's terrell smith uh, he's He was the backup to, to Josh Nijman on the left side last year. Uh, I He sounds like a guy that the coaches kind of trust, even though we've never really seen much of him on the field. Uh, right guard right now, Braxton Pfaff, uh, who's, who's battled shoulder problems his whole career since he got here, kind of a slow start because of that, uh, played as the primary backup last year. I think those are the top two guys to start spring, but uh, there are so many guys that, that nobody's really seen on the offensive line produce, I mean, uh dimitri moore was a junior college guy who redshirted last year uh there's a bunch of younger guys uh thomas hopple uh tj jackson patrick kearns guys like that that are coming up the ranks that redshirted last year uh kyle chung is still around i think he can play center and guards he could be an option so i think there's a lot of guys that will rotate in there and you know, Fuente said that you know they're not afraid to play six, seven, eight, nine guys if they have to. So I don't know if they're going to come away with a definite starting five by the end of the spring, but I would expect Faff and Terrell Smith to be the top guys at least starting and and probably the best chance to get reps there. Okay. How about the other side of the ball uh, in the
0: trenches? D line loses three starters or three key players. So what
1: what's next for that for that group? Well, I I think when you look at the defensive line. The projected starter ne- next year are pretty set. I mean, you got Ricky Walker and Tim Settle coming up at defensive tackle. That's I think those are two really potential breakout guys on the defense. I think they could be really good. Uh, defensive ends, Trayvon Hill and Vinny Mahota, uh, both of them had offseason shoulder surgery, though. So Mahota's out. Hill probably going to be limited. And you really don't have a ton of defensive ends beyond that. Uh, they got Houshen Gaines, who's going to get a ton of reps. Uh, they've actually moved Jimmy Taylor in to play at defensive tackle. And they moved a bunch of other guys from different positions to play defensive end. They've got Xavier Burke coming over from tight end. Uh, They've got Emmanuel Belmar and Raymond Miner moving up from outside linebacker to play defensive end. So uh, it'll be a spring where these guys are kind of learning a new position. Uh, You know, going in, I I was wondering exactly how many guys are going to move. I didn't even know if they could play a spring game based on how many guys were hurt uh, at that position. But uh, that's a really young group that uh, I think will look – not quite what it's going to be in the spring in the, in the fall, uh, if that makes any sense. I mean, the, the starting group is probably pretty well set. I think the spring is trying to determine who's going to be uh, backups and who's going to be able to provide depth there, because right now they don't really have much. Yeah, but it's always good when you're working on
0: depth rather than starters. So. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, we are like, well, we don't have depth and we don't have a starter. That would be the worst <laughs> right. situation. Uh, if you at least have a starting group in mind, and you're like, well, we'll fill, if you can find a fifth or, or uh, a third defensive end, which is really what they had last year in Trayvon Hill, and a third and fourth defensive tackle, which is really what they had last year in Walker and Saddle. I, I think that's a big step. You don't necessarily have to have an entire two deep, although they'd love to, and they'd love to go five tackles. Uh, they don't really have that kind of personnel right now, so... Uh, I think uh, at least trying to make a first step and figuring out who those backups are going to be is the the biggest question. Of spring. It seems like the
0: defensive line has been in that position almost every year, which is an enviable position to be in, where you're just kind of you know like the guys who were sort of the uh, you know they were they were the, the backups last year. Now they're going to move into more prominent roles. That's the, kind of the way it's supposed to work, right? I mean, if they just hit on recruiting at that position better, or is 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 Tech a destination place for for good defensive linemen uh, wh- why do you
1: think it is that they're always in such a good position there well a couple years ago it wasn't necessarily the case uh they were moving guys around just to, to have enough depth there. i mean they moved uh Corey marshall in the defensive tackle because they didn't right. really have a lot of tackles and then all of a sudden they recruited really well get ricky walker tim settle steve Sobchak's not on the team right now but he came in and actually uh, played a little bit last year uh and just right now they just sort of had this senior class and the previous year they had a senior class with daddy Nicholas and Luther Maddie. that it was kind of a wave of, of veterans that came through. And now it's a younger group that's coming up. But uh, historically that's been a position that Virginia tech has done pretty well at it, finding guys to fit into their system. Uh, maybe not always the, the highest ranked guys in recruiting, but guys that produce pretty well in college. Uh, I just think that, you know, you look at the positions on the team, Bud has been there. He's in his 31st year's uh, uh, defensive coach, 20-plus uh, as coordinator. Charlie Wiles has been there 20 years. I mean, those guys have a system in place, and they have a recruiting approach in place. So I, I think that helps that quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Well, the Hokies lose a lot of production in the departure of, of Chuck Clark. I mean, a lot of tackles. Um, you know, the guy pretty much knew where to be all the time. Uh, what is the plan to
1: replace Chuck? Well, they moved Terrell Edmonds uh, from rover to free safety. And the, uh, when Bud was explaining it, the move yesterday, he's just talking about how important that free safety position is in terms of play calling and you need to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, and do everything on the field. And it's tough for a young guy to come in and do that right away, which is you know why they had Chuck in that position in the first place. and That's why they're going to have Terrell there because he's he's pretty much played everywhere in the secondary He's a a guy that sort of broke out last year, and he's got a pretty bright future. So a high IQ guy you want in that position all the time. Uh, You got Edmonds playing there, and now they're going to have Reggie Floyd playing Rover this spring, but uh, that's also a position where you think a guy like Devin Hunter could come in and play right away. Uh, It might be tougher for a guy like Hunter to play free safety where he's got all these responsibilities with play calling and getting the defense set up, but Rover's more of a sort of an instinctual instinctive position i guess would be the word uh lot around the line making tackles stuff like that so that could possibly be a way to get him on the field uh in early playing time but you know reggie floyd's gonna have a chance uh this spring to really make an impact and, and maybe he could put a stamp on himself being the starter and then maybe hunter gets worked into the mix however it's gonna be but is hunter here all spring he's right? not he's okay. he doesn't get here until the summer and the fall okay. so uh that's sort of the what's holding him back from you know definitely being oh this is a guy that's going to start as a true freshman because uh you get here in the summer you have a month's worth of august practices and then the game starts that's hard to do that's that's hard to beat out somebody you know like reggie floyd's not necessarily experienced but he's at least been here a couple years and he's going to have a a couple springs under his belt uh, of experience in that position gotcha
0: what is the best part of covering spring football
1: well, well you, it, I'm going to ask
0: you what the worst is. Well, it be. used to
1: be that you could at least like go out and watch some practice and sit in the sun, and it was nice. Like you know, That's the best part about spring. It's like, this is so relaxed. You're watching spring ball. Nobody really cares what's going on. I mean, this is really low stakes, what's going on in the field. They're just practicing. They're not uh, game planning for an opponent or anything like that. I just thought... It used to be there's just such a relaxed vibe about covering it, and now it seems like these coaches just think they're, you know, splitting the atom out there on the field or reinventing the wheel, whatever cliche you want to use with it. Uh it's not that super secret. I don't feel like it should be that super secret, but the part that's nice about it is, is you talk to these guys. They're a little bit uh, less guarded when they talk because it's like, you know, just practice. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to spill some big, uh, you know, Saturday secret game plan secret by going out there and talking to the media. So I, I think guys are a little bit more at ease about that. And that's, it's a more fun press setting to be in. If you're not like, Oh, give me the answer to this question. I need this. Uh, did you know when this happened? Yeah, you know, nobody likes that. That's never fun. Sure. Am I correct in saying that we do get a little, a
0: few more interview opportunities this year than we did last year? Uh, it's about the same. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah,
1: I, I think most of the press last year was covering basketball well, yeah. well into spring practice. So uh, there wasn't a lot of. I, I was one of the only newspaper guys there most of the time for a lot of this stuff. That won't be the case this year, but it's about the same.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to make it down it if for no other reason than you know to have some tidbits for the podcast because. Uh, and the blog, you know, maybe find some, some angles that you're not working on. Obviously you do such a comprehensive job on everything and uh, you need to take as much, uh, much advantage of the opportunities you get. So I wouldn't try to step on you at all, but uh, I will try to get down there and and add to the coverage as well. But um, okay. The the spring game's on the 22nd. Um, April 22nd. Yeah. April 22nd. Not tomorrow. No, no, not yet. Um, Just in a big picture sense. What is the, can you, can you kind of describe for us what the biggest benefits of spring
1: football are to a program
0: or is it even necessary to have it?
1: Well, I think it's necessary. And I think Fuente kind of outlined this yesterday because there is a turnover in college football. There's that cyclical nature where, you know, these veterans come through, but they're always going to leave you after a certain number of years. And you have new guys coming in that need to learn the way that you do things in college. Uh, so even if they were here in the fall, they haven't really practiced, you know, scout teams, not the same as going through regular practice. And I think that's why Fuente likes this time of year so much is it sort of distills everything into the purest form of football. It's about development. It's about teaching. It's about fundamentals. And he likes all this stuff. So, uh... I, I think that there's just sort of a basic concepts part of spring that is very valuable. And you know, you know, they said the other day, you go back to square one, uh, you start at square one and then you accelerate from there. And some groups go faster than other ones do based on experience. But you always go back to that starting point because you want people to have that base foundation of, of knowledge about your schemes and and how you do things.
0: All right. Any upset picks in the tournament? We like to end this thing with a,
1: yeah, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, all the way. <laughs> I'm gonna keep picking Wisconsin. I'm not even gonna project to be, uh, pre- pretend to be objective about picking Wisconsin. I'm just gonna I'm gonna keep picking Wisconsin. That a boy, I appreciate that.
0: my, well, my, my took, bracket's already screwed up anyway, we'll, so I might we'll as well be,
1: cheer for the team that I went, to, the school that I went to.
0: I told you guys last week. If if you do nothing else, if you got nothing else out of that podcast, make sure you took West, Wichita State in that first round game as a 10 seed because that they were like a six and a half point favorite. Over a seven seed And if team. I
1: said anything, it was that Minnesota was horribly overseeded Correct. We both said that. So I said some other things, but we don't need to pay <laughs> attention to that. Just pay attention to the ones that were exceptionally right.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I'm going to give you one upset pick. Take West Virginia on the money line. To, yeah, I don't like Gonzaga. To beat Gonzaga straight up. That, that West Virginia team,
1: I've, I've liked them all year. and They're tough. They're tough to play. That yeah. up and down the courts and pressing you the whole time. This might be uh this might be a chance for Bob Huggins' team to to get to that final four. Yeah. Well, enjoy the games, everybody, and we'll be back again, what, next week, maybe
0: to update uh how spring's going? Or yeah. is that too soon? We'll maybe? see how things go. Okay. But yeah, if we can, if we have enough material, we'll be back here next week. If not, we'll we'll be back uh, not too long from now. For Andy Bitter, this is Aaron McFarling. Thank you for joining us.